0: Modern.
1: Modern. Modern. Modern.
0: Modern. We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force Modern. of an old fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that
1: a double? Modern
0: Bar Cart. What's Shaking Cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 143 of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. I'm your host, Modern Bar Cart CEO, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for this remote interview episode, where we prank call the best and brightest minds in the spirits and cocktail world and trick them into giving up their secrets for your personal gain. This time around, I hang out with my friend Aaron Knoll. He's a prolific writer, gin reviewer, and spirits judge, and his website, theginisin.com, offers a wealth of resources and data for gin lovers all over the world. He and I get into a ton of fun, nerdy gin stuff during our chat, but before we dive into all that, let's give you the chance to make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is the bijou, which is the French word for jewel, likely referring to the gem-like colors of the ingredients, signifying diamonds, emeralds, and rubies. First published in Harry Johnson's 1880s bartender's manual, this libation has undergone a number of metamorphoses over the past century and a half. It's one of those drinks where you look it up on Google and every published recipe contains different proportions. And these moments really kind of get my blood boiling because I'm sitting here trying to give you all good, accurate information. And to do that, I have to wrestle with the sloppily documented work of the folks who came before me. Nonetheless, I've got some theories on how this drink should be made, so let's proceed. To make the Bijou cocktail, you'll need one ounce of gin, one ounce of green chartreuse, one ounce of sweet vermouth, and one to two dashes of orange bitters. We of course recommend our embitterment orange bitters. Combine all these ingredients in a mixing glass with ice, stir until they're well chilled and diluted, then strain into a stemmed cocktail glass and garnish with a brandied cherry and an expressed lemon twist. There's no consensus about whether to discard the twist or leave it in the glass, so follow your heart. The first thing to note is that this recipe that I just listed is taken directly from David Wondrich's book, Imbibe, which is a pretty definitive resource on 19th century drink recipes. In his passage on the bijou, Wondrich notes that he took this particular formulation from the 1900 edition of the book, which is the second revised edition of the Bartender's Manual, originally published in 1882. Well, I got curious and I looked up a PDF of that original edition online, which I'll link to on the show notes page, and the 1882 version still presents an equal parts rendition of the drink but instead of one ounce of each ingredient johnson uses something closer to three quarters of an ounce so long story short if you want to make a faithful version of the bijou cocktail use equal parts but it doesn't really matter if you use one ounce of each ingredient or three quarters of an ounce that's up to you Fast forward about a century to New York City where Dale DeGroff is revamping the drinks menu at his famous bar, The Rainbow Room, and we get an updated model of the bijou featuring an ounce and a half of gin and only a half ounce each of green chartreuse and sweet vermouth. This clearly is a far cry from the original, and the justification he gives is that our palates have changed to prefer less sweet drinks since the recipe was first published but it still doesn't explain why there are all these other recipes floating around with tweaks that bear no relation to the original cocktail or its primary contemporary upgrade by de Groff. In the end, let's just tip our hats to the bijou as a wonderfully complex cocktail where gin is supported by three of its most awesome cocktail sidekicks, vermouth, chartreuse, and orange bitters. If you want to change the flavor profile of the drink, consider using some of the resources in this episode to find a new and interesting gin. But if you decide to change the ingredient ratios, please just do us all a favor and call your creation a riff on the bijou so that we don't get our hopes up for an equal parts cocktail. So now that you've got a gin-tastic cocktail with my little historical diatribe for added texture, let's turn our attention back to the interview. In this juniper infused discussion with gin expert, author, and spirits judge Aaron Knoll, some of the topics we cover include the story of how Aaron fell in love with gin at 3 a.m. at a dive bar in Buffalo, New York, how he developed his pentagonal and now hexagonal visual representation of gin flavor profiles. We then do, of course, a sample tasting using this visualization to demonstrate how to systematically break down the flavor profile of an actual gin in the glass. In addition, we chat about some of the contemporary trends in the gin world, how to distinguish a contemporary gin from a London dry gin from an old Tom gin, what trends Aaron is most excited about from his recent statistical analysis of consumer taste preferences, and much, much more. If you haven't visited theginisin.com and used Aaron's flavor tool to find the next gin on your shopping list, I'm gonna go ahead and need you to do that, okay? His site offers an incredible wealth of resources and scholarship on the subject that I find extremely useful, and his books are available for purchase on amazon.com and wherever books are sold. With that, I'll leave you to enjoy this citrusy, botanical, and slightly herbal conversation with my friend, gin
1: expert, Aaron Knoll Aaron thanks for being on the podcast pleasure to be here really excited to uh, jump on a call and talk with you about uh, gin thanks for having me
0: yeah man yeah so we had a chance to spend some time together this past February uh, judging at one of the gin tables for the American Distilling Institute at their annual judging of craft spirits uh, so that's how I know you but could you just take a step back and introduce yourself to our listeners
1: Sure thing. So my name's Aaron Knoll. I've been writing about gin kind of professionally for over 10 years right now. My website, uh, theginisin.com is largely where I do a lot of my original work. I review gins. I kind of write about the history about gin, gin and culture, gin cocktails and all that stuff. And um, you know, and so in addition to kind of writing about gin, I write for Gin Magazine, Artisan Spirit. I judge spirits with places like the American Distilling Institute. Been doing that for I think that was my, my maybe my eighth time right there. And it's a uh, you know, it's a real delight to see the kind of diverse range of people and and meet yourself there this year. So um, you know, it's but um, you know, I've been involved with gin for a little well over ten years. But um, it's you know, it's kind of my passion and love.
0: Yeah. So. Gin is one of those polarizing spirits. Personally, it's my favorite spirit. Um, maybe, maybe with like a really nice Calvados aside, but it, like in general, it's my favorite type of spirit for its variety. It's also one of my favorite cocktail spirits. Um, but it does tend to be polarizing, and people who our gin enthusiasts tend to have some sort of story about how they got into gin in the first place. So, so what's, what's your history with gin and why did you decide that this particular spirit was something that you were going to get into at a time when
1: a lot of people were getting into things like bourbon? Right. I will admit I was on the other side of that polarized spectrum when this all began. If you go back to college, I thought gin was an old man's drink, not something that a college kid would ever drink. I just, and admittedly, I was incredibly naive. I had maybe had a little bit of gin once and said, oh, I didn't like it. It was, we went to this bar. So in college, me and my group of friends, we kind of had this little divy bar we went to. And one night, very late in Buffalo, last calls 4 a.m. So about 3.45, Pat, the bartender, you know, takes care of me and my friends and He's like, Aaron, this will settle your stomach before the cab ride home. And it was a gin and tonic, something I'd never had. However, what I thought was really amazing about this and what turned me on to it wasn't just that he made me a gin and tonic, but that Pat went to kind of the back of the shelf. He pulled out a bottle. I think it was Martin Miller's the first time I had it. So we're talking maybe this was maybe 2005, 2006. And he was able to talk about what you were tasting here. It wasn't just this is a gin and tonic. It was. Here's gin, here's what it is. He he was more of a beer guy. He wasn't a real big gin fan, but he could talk really intelligently about several kinds of gin. So the next week I similar story, but this time I asked for gin, and I think he broke out a bottle of Hendrix and you know he talked a little bit about the cucumber, the rose. I'm a real big proponent of, you know, not like education, like classroom education, but that kind of like casual moment where you can catch a consumer and Turn them onto something or just share something with them that they might not know because this entire path I've walked down would not have happened if not for a bartender who knew about gin and decided to share his knowledge with me. That inspired me and set me on this path. After that, I kind of was like, Oh, I'm gonna go to the store, I'm gonna try what gins there are. There wasn't very many in 2006, this was probably pre-aviation maybe dh Kron was the big release the big new gin that people were trying and you know that's where it began i'm forever grateful to pat for that and i think that you know bartenders really have a really important role in you know spirit education there that's the moment to catch people and kind of turn them on to something new
0: right yeah that moment of um you know, where you get to take advantage of somebody maybe not paying full attention to what they ordered and just maybe right. s- slip them the uh, the inverse Mickey, right? You slip them something <laughs> that uh, wakes them up to a new experience uh, and kind of changes the way their brain is wired uh, when it comes to that flavor.
1: Yeah, my barriers were reduced. Admittedly, I had a few drinks before that. I might have said, no, I don't like gin. But at that moment, the generosity, you know. I'm sharing you with this gin, you know, you know, on the house, this is your leaving, leaving sort of drink, but also it was, you know, my guard was down and I was willing to entertain something new. And, you know, I mean, I hate to say it. I think I'm an open-minded person, but there might've been moments where I'd be like, no, my image is more important. I cannot be seen walking around the bar with a gin and tonic, you know, Mm -hmm. but, um, I, I am so glad I'm forever grateful that that was, that that was changed. So. Try something new. That's that's what I've that's what I've learned. Never say no to when a bartender is enthusiastic about something and wants to share.
0: Yeah, totally, totally. So I am so excited to chat with you, partially because uh, fortuitously in the mail the other day I received this. Beautiful little publication that you sent along, which is called the uh, 2020 Consumer Taste Preference in Gin and Botanical Spirits uh, Report for Distillers and Spirits Creators. So Mm -hmm. eventually I want to maybe wrap up by talking about this, but but you've authored several other publications uh, and then you've got this website, which is more than just a series of blog posts, more than just a series of gin reviews. It's actually a data aggregator. And uh, so so I was hoping you could talk both about your kind of like pen and paper, like the ink hardcover and Kindle publications, and then maybe transition to the continuing project of the website and then the data that that website yields uh, through people's various searching for the gins that they might want to try
1: next. Certainly, you know, I think the easiest way to kind of all of this began a little bit earlier before I had any books out there where I had noticed there was a real big disconnect between how people, you know, people at a bar were talking about the flavors of gins and how I saw distillers branding or positioning their gins, you know? So you still see it a lot today. I have a gin that has lavender, cardamom, ginseng, juniper, coriander, all the rest, right? And people would nod and say, okay, that's a really great, exciting story. But when they would have that gin, you know, say they're back at their table sitting with their friends, they'd be like, oh, this kind of tastes really floral, or this is a really hot gin. If you haven't tasted the individual distillates, right, if you don't know how lavender can come off a still or the variety of techniques a distiller can do to make it taste green and herbal or really floral and literal lavender perfume, you really... I think people just didn't have kind of that language to talk about it and appreciate it. So in an effort to kind of bridge that disconnect, because I don't think there was anything wrong with it. I don't think it's, if you talk about the way something tastes as being herbal and spicy, that's fine. That's you and your language. So the goal was I began by creating this kind of visualization. And like I said, that's the framework for everything, the books and the consumer taste report. So I noticed that people kind of, I want to say kind of were attracted to these five predominant characteristics, especially early in gin. They would talk about heat. Distillers hate this one, but this is the first thing that a novice drinker says about a spirit. Oh, that's really hot. It burns the palate. Or that, oh, that's really smooth. It doesn't. I found that that was something that people wanted to know. And there were people who loved it. And there were people who would avoid it. In terms of flavor, people would talk about, you know, cardamom is tasting kind of spicy, you would talk people would talk about oh, that's citrusy people would say piney is a nod to the gin community. I replaced piney with juniper in my diagram. However, that's, you know, that has been a bit of a challenge because people taste pine and things like spruce in gin contribute to that juniper flavor. Although it's really more piney. Um, Mm -hmm. Later on down the road, I noticed that as the distillers were being a little more diverse in the botanicals they were using in the presentations, there kind of emerged this new flavor profile, herbal. You started to get these spirits like um, cardinal gin, for example, really minty with kind of like that trigeminal menthol coolness in the palate. So I kind of added that. My pentagon became a hexagon later on. But the other thing I noticed in people's language, I should also just add this. I was a... I'm a researcher and a designer in my side career. I design web products, and I do that by studying how people engage with technology. So by studying how people engaged with tasting a spirit, for example, I noticed that they also lacked, they didn't have a lot of precise terms for the amount of flavor they were tasting, right? People would say, oh, there's a lot of citrus in here. There's a little citrus in here. There's no citrus in here. So while, you know, some other people, you know, you want to differentiate between 10 degrees of citrus in in a gin. And that gives a lot of wiggle room for representing intensity. My goal was more to communicate to the how people were just discussing the spirit anyway. So a little bit of citrus was how they were saying it. So I created a visualization with only three degrees of flavor intensity. So if there's a little bit you know like that's a score of 1 if there's some that's a 2 if there's a lot that's a 3 it's not as precise as others but the goal was to just kind of communicate this to people in their everyday knowledge and say you know you might not like you might like this gin you might not i gave it 5 stars on my site but it's really not about what i think about it in my opinion it's really about finding that flavor of gin that appeals to you you might like floral gin more than me that's awesome Maybe I pan those spice forward gins. Doesn't matter. If you know what you like, you could be a more intelligent gin consumer. So that was really the beginning of when I began kind of taking my, you know, tasting notes and this diagram out to a larger audience. Uh, My first book I wrote was uh, The Craft of Gin. That was written with the American Distilling Institute. I did that with David T. Smith, a... I think he was on your program not too long ago, gin writer from the UK and gin magazine and all that. We, we met at, um, at American Distilling Institute Judging. I've met a lot of really great people through that. And we kind of collaborated to write one of like the first books that talked about American craft gin and kind of presented those, you know, tasty notes to a larger audience. Um, I expanded upon that in my next book which was uh, published with Quarto, and that one is now in six languages. That's Gin: the Art and Craft of the Artisan Revival. As a writer, the big secret is, you don't get to pick the title for your own books. It's a mouthful. I would have loved to just call it Gin 300, but alas, I I was uh, overridden on that, but um, the book has been translated. It's been quite successful, and that includes tasty notes from over 300 gins from around the world. Although the visualization doesn't appear in that book, if you read my notes and you're familiar with my work, I use that framework to describe the spirits I'm tasting. So rather than saying, you know, a lot of times we say I taste coriander and lemon, I tried to say, you know, you can taste the coriander lemon here, but you have a real spicy, slightly citrus forward profile. Kind of using that more generalizable language, just because in my experience, I found that Communicates much better to people who are outside of our spirits community, right? Who study and intellectualize these spirits all the time. The Consumer Reports Guide came a little bit later on. You know, as I've been writing about gin for a long time and working with the American Distilling Institute, I've come to work a little more closely with distillers, you know, whether it's doing a little bit of consulting on the history or consulting on taste and flavor. One of the big things I noticed was if you're a distiller who's creating a product, but you're, say, working with Diageo, you have an immense amount of research on how people talk about and what they're actually drinking. But if you're a small scale craft distiller, I found them relying a lot on Hunch, what their friends liked. They didn't really have a lot of accessible information about what was happening, you know, in the industry and how people were tasting and what people liked at the moment. So my goal was to, you know, I noticed that through my website, I allow people to search by that flavor. So you can click on that Pentagon hexagon, select the flavors you like. And I began to notice after a few years of allowing, you know, having this search feature that people were perhaps not searching for the things that I expected, I know started noticing big gaps between what I was reviewing what i was tasting and what people were putting out there and i saw this as a really big opportunity for if you're a craft distiller who wants to make a gin you know because your whiskey going to take five years three years hopefully you rather than taking a guess in a very crowded gin market you know why not provide a little bit of context to say maybe you don't have to appeal to everyone but there's this huge unfulfilled market that if you designed a gin for that need i think you'd have a huge audience. You know, so I published the first one in 2018. And, you know, just kind of as a a project for fun to see how it went. It was immensely successful. A lot of distillers told me they loved it and they wanted to use it and or were using it. And that kind of inspired me to say, well, I'm going to really double down on this research and really say, you know, I have a lot of work I've done just for my site about how people talk about it, but I, you know, I kind of expanded and I wanted to bring it to a bigger audience and start looking at things, you know, in 2019, I allowed people to, uh, if they opted into it, to share their gender identity, their age. And we noticed some really interesting things, some that affirmed, you know, kind of long held folk uh, reasoning and other ones that, in my opinion, completely turned everything that I was told you know, you make assumptions about, you know, what men and women drink. Uh, they just, the data didn't support it. So it's really just about moving the industry forward and, you know, kind of inspiring bartenders and distillers to, you know, better communicate or to better understand the people who are on the other side of the, you know, tasting room table or bar.
0: Yeah, man. Wow. Uh, there's so much to dig into here and I definitely want to... Actually do a little tasting here. We uh, in, in just a moment. I've got um I've got some nice gin here. But mm-hmm. but first I I wanna talk a little bit about the hexagon. Uh and I, I wanna mm-hmm. give you my my thoughts on it because Sure. the more I sit and think about it and the more I play around on your site, the more brilliant I think it is from a design perspective and from a sort of knowledge sharing perspective. I think the issue that you identified was that people don't have language in many situations to describe exactly with a great deal of precision what they're experiencing in the flavor world. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, based on the way that you've been talking about this hexagon, this data visual or this this flavor profile visualizer that you've built into your site, what you do is, is There's a couple ways to think about it from my end. One way to think about it would be almost in the same way that you look at like the Myers-Briggs personality test, right? The MBTI, it's got, you've got these four kind of categories and you can be either, you know, on one side of the fence or the other side of the fence in each category. So there's a four by two. And then in -hmm. addition to that, you can be weak or strong depending on like how far on either side of the fence you are. so that's a that's a that's a four by um, four by two by another one. so y- you're creating this with a very small number like like a number of things you can count on your hands and then simply by creating a couple of other little opportunity little hooks, for people to provide more information, you're creating this incredibly robust, but also incredibly simple way to very quickly communicate a ton of things about a gin's flavor profile. And if you think about the flavor of a gin, it's somewhat analogous to the personality of a person, you know? Right. Um, I, I really love that. And the other way that I like to kind of think about the way that you visualize a gin flavor profile on your site is, By thinking about how flavor works at the intermediate level of processing in the brain, in the olfactory cortex. So for folks who haven't listened to um, episodes in the past where I've talked about this, basically what happens is you have all of these receptors in your mouth and in your nose and what happens is these receptors are basically zeros and ones. They're, they can either be activated or unactivated. And when they're activated, they send that basic little li- like a little electrical impulse that you can compare to like a dot, like a like a like a little zap of electricity. They send that up to some higher structures for further processing before it gets to your brain. And and the most important of those processors is the olfactory cortex and what you get Mm -hmm. what the olfactory uh, cortex sends up to your brain is this almost like this pointillist visualization of what the senses are sensing. So it's almost like this proto image that then gets sent up to the prefrontal cortex for further polishing and refinement in the same way uh, as when you walk right up to a pointless painting and then start stepping back and back and finally the picture itself emerges. So basically mm-hmm. what you're doing with this visualization is you're creating like a very, very basic version of exactly what's going on in the olfactory cortex, which I think is brilliant because it's so true to the actual experience.
1: Thank you so much for the compliment. I, I am flattered by, uh, <laughs> flattered and humbled by that. And I mean, but I think that's exactly right. I I will also say I, I am a perfume nerd. I also really like geeking out about perfumes in a really not a professional way. But I think a lot of I think the first thing that when people are tasting especially is it blows their mind when I say most of what you're perceiving is retronasal olfaction it is your sense of smell that we're really engaging with here. Your taste is sweet, sour, salty. You're probably only getting the bitterness of the ethanol from your your taste. People, I don't think we have a lot of deep understanding about what's actually happening when we eat. And so one, you have the taste, right? Very kind of binary, six, seven, five binaries, depending on who uh, you're reading these days. A retronasal olfaction, olfactory sense is incredibly robust. And it's one of the few senses that They say that you can develop and hone and you can generate new cells as you get older. So if you say you are bad at your sense of smells bad and you're poor at describing, the, the hope is what I've read says that this is actually something you can develop and build more sensory receptors by merely trying. The third part about taste, and this is the one that I think distillers react to in my diagram, which is the trigeminal sense, right? The heat, the sensation of capsaicin and hot peppers, or the minty coolness. Um, that, that One of the big things I think, and why I will not take it out of my diagram is I really, it's such a core part of our sensory experience that when I think we get into the tasting, like that's something that I don't want you to hide or run from. I think it's really important to understand, like, how does the tannins maybe in an aged gin uh, change the way you are tasting something? And w- we shouldn't be running from it just because it's not part of the olfactory. It is part; it is a holistic experience right here. So, uh, you know, and and I do really love geeking about, like, the sensory science that goes into this, right? Like, tasting is fun, but it's also super... Humbling from an intellectual perspective because so much is happening and you're very it's very meditative it's like self observation at some level because mm-hmm. when that's happening in your in your brain you you're just kind of pausing and observing yourself and honestly sometimes I don't you know that's not something we do a lot,
0: yeah, yeah, you're both a participant and a spectator uh yeah exactly yeah, totally well, this sounds like a great time to bust out this little bottle of, um, of gin I got this sample uh, a little over a month ago before this whole uh, virus palooza started when uh, our mutual friend and uh, co-judge this year at ADI, Natasha Bahrami, uh, was here in D.C. doing the, the Gin World uh, event where she uh, she brought in a ton of different distillers and um, you know Eric Anderson from Hendrix, William Grant and Sons, just a ton of amazing people to talk about gin. And so I've got this sample from Copper and Kings and it's a, it's kind of a special gin. It's, it's a a little different than a lot of stuff that, that you're going to see on the shelf. So I figured I would let you walk me through a tasting of this using your method and then kind of, kind of just take me through the six different indices. Um, and then, uh, we'll, we'll just talk about what we think about it. So I'm going to pour it right now. Maybe. Oh yeah. Fantastic. It uh, has some sound going into the microphone right now. Yeah. See, there's
1: glass. And I also love that this is a this is a pink gin, correct? Right, like this is going to have a pink hue. It is, but very unlike a lot of, but unlike other pink gins, this one is very adamant. This is all natural pink, and not to disparage. I mean, some people have used colors, which is fine. Um, but uh, there is kind of this trend towards the natural in it. So, first step I always do is you know exactly what you're doing. I kind of take a look at the spirit. I see, you know, is there any color to it you know and in this case very very clear color we're kind of getting then it's it's vibrant it's
0: almost like a it's almost it's this is probably the pinkest of pink gins i've ever
1: seen actually it's it's like it's like a raspberry hue to it it's really Mm -hmm. fascinating so i'll be totally honest i know of this gin i have not had it myself so i'm really excited to kind of hear you describe it as we walk through this so the first thing i always do when i you know pour a gin is, you know, I nose it with my mouth slightly open, right? Again, we are engaging. We want that air to kind of circulate between your entire olfactory sense system, which means in opening the mouth and, you know, just kind of keep, increases better aeration. You're gonna get a better sense of what that smells like. And by doing that, you will reduce the intensity if you're getting kind of like an ethanol or any of that hot aroma, it'll kind of mitigate that. It won't burn your olfactory nerves. you. If you do this to judging and you don't parch your mouth, you will be burnt out uh, on your nose. After two gins, you won't be able to smell anything. Absolutely. So, so yeah. tell me, what, what are you smelling so far?
0: You know, I'm, it's it's funny, and maybe this is just the color speaking, but you do get a little bit of like a raspberry type. Uh, you get you get like a, a tart a tart red berry note to it. I do get the juniper, and and I'll be honest, like this is a little commentary for me. It, it, I don't know about you, but the first thing I look for when I'm nosing is juniper. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that's, you know, I'm, I'm looking for it and I do find it at least on the nose. Great. And then, you know, one of the things we spent a decent amount of time talking about um, at ADI, just by virtue of the fact that a lot of gin flights are separated using the distillate base as a way mm-hmm. to organize them. You know, I, I start to think a little bit about maybe you know guessing what kind of base this was distilled from. And in this case, I'm almost positive that this was distilled from a fruit base. I believe it is an apple brandy, like an unaged apple brandy that was then infused with botanicals.
1: Yeah. And and I think looking and I think that base is one of those things. We I was gonna get to that in a moment, but I like I always am really intrigued about the base because if you understand the base. It can't. It will radically shift what how how you approach what is in the glass because there are some characteristics of Apple that I think some people are less a fan of. I think one one person I sat with it uh, judging once is like, "Oh, there's like this Appley funk to it," and I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, there is, but that's also there in a really good Apple spirit, and that's kind of part of the charm." So I think to really appreciate concept, it is it is important to understand like what actually went into the bottle. At this point of the tasting, i think it's really great if you're kind of picking up on those things. You know, however, that was one of the things that i find that you know, if you're not familiar with apple base, people will well, there's a very wide range of people will describe that kind of like base spirit aroma there. So, let's move on to tasting right now. I see yeah. you kind of sipping it mm-hmm. a little bit. Um so when i sip, of course, the first thing you know i do is like i like to sip it, let it kind of like sit on the palate we spit at judging but this is kind of controversial because if you don't swallow even the slightest amount i think you kind of miss out on the really retro nasal olfactory experience that the spirit will provide so i only you know i focus on what i'm getting in my mouth but i also like to think about how does that change it kind of goes down the back of my throat and kind of fades right there so tell me no. a little bit about what you're uh, what you're tasting right now
0: Yeah, so I would say on the palate, this gin definitely displays a more floral quality than it does on the nose. Uh, On the Mm -hmm. nose, I was definitely picking up a lot of that bright fruit and uh, an apple for sure. And, And now... I'm definitely getting, you know, it's got roses right on the label. So one would assume (laughs) there's rose in there. And indeed the back of the label says there's rose. Um, You know, again, when we do our judging at these events, we're doing it blind. This is not a blind tasting, but you know, it, it, it just goes to show, you know, when you have expectations and those expectations are met, it's kind of validating. So like I do get the rose here. It's not just doing some invisible role. Uh, I, I Mm -hmm. I personally like that. And, um, you know, I, I think there are some some other minor floral qualities to it. Uh, I, I also notice some a decent amount of heat to it. It's it's not mm-hmm. a it's not a gin that you sip and then it's immediately gone. There is there is some some good warming qualities, and I still, you know, in my throat and my chest after that first sip have have a decent amount of warmth. So that's that's my overall, uh, I guess, like qualitative flavor evaluation. Um, how would we? How map about the this juniper? On? Oh yeah, I'm the just, juniper.
1: Yeah. How's that on palate?
0: Let me take another sip. Mm. Oh, okay. and, and we are near an active uh, fire station right now, so uh, folks, just enjoy the audio verite. And uh, <laughs> imagine imagine that this gin tasting is being conducted while we're being chased by the authorities. That makes it more exciting. <laughs> um, yeah, you know what? the jun- yeah, And I think that's what I was missing. I think some of that juniper... Was the uh, the a little bit of those florals from the juniper also there? And, and this kind of brings me to something that was really interesting in the consumer taste report that you wrote. Um, and you actually did some really good commentary on this. Sometimes, you know, juniper could be you know considered like herbal, sometimes it could be considered piney, sometimes it could be considered, I, I suppose, depending on the variety, a little bit floral. Um, mm-hmm. and so I think in this case that juniper really, it kind of gets in the sidecar right next to the rose and just kind of rides along, right
1: run alongside the rose in in the flavor profile. So would you say there's, is there a lot of floral? Is there some floral? How would you kind of quantify it? I'd say that
0: floral, so if we're going by your flavor diagram, I would um, classify this gin as very floral. Mm -hmm. Um, I would give it a three on florality. Um, What's next, juniper maybe? Yeah, let's talk about the juniper. Juniper is tough here because what and I'm it, I'm overthinking this for sure. But what I'm thinking is that this is probably a 2 on juniper, but it tastes like it's a 1 on juniper, and I think it's just that the juniper was really really well handled. Mhm. Um so it's like it's there but it's, it's really, like I said, it's really linked up with that floral nature for some reason in my evaluation. So I'll give it a one functionally, mm-hmm. but I
1: think, I think it's actually got more juniper than you would suspect in there. I mean, this is, this is when I say, when you're tasting like this, trust your gut. If your gut says it's a two, this, this flavor diagram is just about enabling communication. It's not about saying there's an objective example of one. Most people will say there's a little or there's some, and we can have a discussion about it, and people Mm -hmm. will sometimes be able to come to an agreement. It's not about saying this is definitely what a 2 tastes like. If you feel like there's some, cool. Embrace your subjective. We are tasting here. We're not uh, doing physics, you know? Yep. Let's talk about the other ones. I'm curious, like, is there any herbal character in there? You know what? There is a slight herbal character
0: on the finish, and... um, Man, I think it's all boiling down to this juniper, because I think the juniper lingers a little bit longer than some of the other flavors. And I think, you know, when you you pair that piney juniper with some of that appley base distillate funk that you were talking about, I think mm-hmm. that kind of creates some of that herbalness on the finish. So I think for juniper and herbal, I'd, I'd give both a one.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: so it, and and. You know, I, I think that's right. I think it's a, I think it's very floral. I I think that it's definitely there for juniper and herbal. Um, and then I guess heat would be the next uh, another one. Yep, heat's next. Yep. I'd say two. It's it's a two on heat. It's uh, I get a definitive amount of heat, but there's nothing about this gin that would make me think it is something like a navy strength, for example.
1: Right. It's forty-five percent ABV, right? The bottle says. 45 percent yeah it's really interesting there's pretty much no correlation in heat perception especially like in that 80 to 100 proof range they can be all across the board 100 proof can sometimes taste like a one sometimes an 80 proof tastes like a a three it's just about what the distiller does yeah how about citrus i'm curious what you think about that hmm
0: hmm It's tricky because I get, well, let's, let's talk about spice first and I'll 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 give you my, 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 my citrus after the spice. I get a decent amount of spice on this. I'd get like a two on the spice and I think Mm -hmm. I'd only really give it a one on the citrus because I think the citrus is there. I definitely get some, uh, if I had to guess, it would probably be like dried lemon peel. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think what's happening is that the citrus and the spice are kind of together in the same way that the juniper and the floral are together in this gin. Because, um, like, I don't know. To me, like, coriander has some lemony notes to it. To me, some oh, spices. Right? So what I get is I get, like, a decent amount of coriander. I get some, I, I get a, a definitely a, a two spice level. And that leads me to like a one evaluation of the citrus. And I just, it's crazy to me, like going through this exercise with you because this, I'd never tasted this gin before. And um, it's just crazy doing this exercise, how much information is revealed
1: about the gin. It's crazy. And so I'm cheating. I'm reading about the spirit while you're reviewing because I haven't had a chance to taste it. So to kind of illustrate, I think the challenge that led to the diagram, let me quote from their Description. This is the distiller's description of what's in here. Crushed whole juniper berries together with rose hips, rose water, sweet orange, tangerine, lime, and pink grapefruit peels. Alongside a few other things. But what kind of gin do you think you would be getting if that was what you read? I would expect a very citrusy gin. And, you know, and I think this therein lies kind of the communication barrier is like, this is... Yeah, all that citrus is in there. And that's all awesome. But just because it's in there doesn't mean you're doesn't mean you're getting a citrus bomb of a gin. People who don't like citrus would probably read this and be like, Yeah, you know, I'm not I'm not gonna buy this. However, as you just described it, I, I'm not sure this is a this is a citrus for a gin. This is something else.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting, too, because I totally whiffed on the citrus type. I was like, yeah, dried lemon peel. And then we've got, like, tangerine. We've got pink grapefruit. It's like I was I was way off. Um, and I think what that speaks to is one of the cool it, – it's either cool or awful, depending on which side of the debate you're on. But the fact that, you know, when you're judging a bourbon, for example, or you're tasting a bourbon, you know that all the flavor notes you're getting are metaphors. They are simply exactly. metaphors. Exactly derived from the charred oak barrel and the yeast and the distillate base. However, Mm -hmm. in gin, sometimes what we're saying is a metaphor. And sometimes what we're saying is a definitive, unique botanical. And that Mm -hmm. is the simultaneously infuriating and intriguing part about gin. Because, like, I don't know, to me, the fusion of citrus that I tasted resembled dried lemon peel. But as you described, there's not nary a dry lemon peel to be seen in the
1: botanical bill for this gin. Uh, So what do you do with that? (laughs) I I find it one of the most fascinating things that as a writer or student of gin, that there's, if if you're drinking a wine, right, you can say anything. You taste peaches and strawberries and everyone's like, that's awesome. But if you say there's peaches and strawberry notes in this gin, Sometimes like people or even like the distillers like you're wrong. There's none of that in there like we can be wrong in our tasting notes. And I don't think that's entirely fair because we don't know one maybe you don't know what rose hips taste like distilled two i have worked with distillers rose hips can taste like nearly anything depending on how the distiller treats it the botanical doesn't correlate with flavor and i think Mm -hmm. for a long time we've been really unfair it's almost made us inaccessible to the public like we have insulated ourselves because no that's you're wrong there's no strawberries in there sorry come again I, i just don't think that's the right approach if you taste strawberries that's fantastic, you know, and I think and I think it could be illuminating to talk about what the distiller did. But, you know, our tasting notes are fraught in gin and botanical spirits in a way they're definitely not in bourbon, for example, because of what you just described, I, I, I found it one of the most interesting things, interesting disconnects as I've gotten more into the space. And when I first started out, like was the worry of, you know, at ADI, we write, these notes to the distiller describing what we're tasting. It's one of the beautiful things about it is you don't just give something a 75. I call it like a love letter to the distiller. I'm like, you know, I'm saying, here's what I'm tasting. You know, here's some things I think you're doing really cool. It's why I love judging this competition, but I was petrified the first time I did it because I didn't want to be wrong. And if I tasted strawberries, I was like, "Eh, that's probably not in there. I'm just gonna go on the safe side and say, coriander angelica <laughs> juniper i mean i i was even i was even scared sitting at a table with david Wunderich and audrey saunders judging gin like that is really terrifying as someone who's just getting into it because these people are experts have great palates and and i didn't want to be wrong but um I, you know i you know i think hopefully hopefully some of my work and hopefully the movement of the entire community we've all gotten smarter about gin i think we're getting to a place where it's okay to use, you know, perfume-like language or bourbon-like metaphors to describe this complex sensory system we're engaging here.
0: Yeah, totally, totally. Uh, it's, And I think, you know, I think we're making progress. I think the more we have conversations like this one and the more that we can, you know, uh, illuminate some of these idiosyncrasies and intricacies to our listener group, you know, the the more the word is going to get out there. So that's, you know, one of the reasons why I'm so happy to talk to you about it. But um, one last thing I wanted to just have you walk us through, because it's not Mm -hmm. something I'm super confident in, uh, but I I know that you're probably going to be an excellent person to communicate this, is is there's different gin categories out there. And Mm -hmm. unlike when you walk into the liquor store and you go through the wine aisles and you're like, okay, here's my Burgundies, here's my Bordeaux's, here's my New Zealand's, here's my Reds and Whites. You know, it's pretty well classified by category. You walk up to a shelf full of gin and there's no signs or divisions in general, um, telling you what is a London dry style versus a contemporary style. Uh, and in fact, I'm sure if you ask most people at liquor stores, they wouldn't be able to tell you the differences mm. in these styles. So can you walk us through what the major styles of gin are in 2020? And maybe just give us a few ways to think about them, knowing that there is
1: some some bleed over and overlap between some of these categories necessarily. Oh, certainly. And it is it is really difficult, I think, to look at a bottle on the shelf and know exactly what you're getting. And I think that's still one of the biggest barriers to turning people on to new kinds of gin or encouraging experimentation. So let's talk about what you see generally. London Dry Gin. Awesome, they've they've redefined it a little bit, but the key takeaway of London Dry Gin is you can have a gin like Ophir. Fantastic gin, incredibly spice forward like cardamom and cloves most people would say this doesn't taste like London Gin. The the lesson in here is that London Dry is a processed designation, distilled up to a certain ABV before being redistilled with botanicals or, you know, you can't use it as a stand-in, but a lot of people do. That being said, when I look at a shelf, right, you have your classic gins. Those are gonna be the ones that are gonna have a strong juniper dominant presence. And that would be, you know, so things like Gordon's, things like Tangeray. Beefeater, I would say is lean's classic. However, that kind of shows the blurry line between contemporary, which is juniper is present, say like the gin you just had. However, other botanicals are kind of in the lead like the rose hips and the rose notes you were getting. Those are contemporary style gins. there was, a, you know, people tried to create, like, place-based designations. However, you know, you can make a contemporary gin in the heart of London. You can make a classic gin down in Tennessee. There is no place that leads to a style. Though a lot of people, it's very attractive to kind of create a terroir in a place-based style. But we're not really, there's no real proof that that exists. Let's talk about the kind of ancillary categories. Age gin is the easiest one to, des- to identify on the shelf. That is a gin which has been rested in a barrel. What kind of barrel? Great question. Could be new char, just like a, uh, you know, bourbon. It could be a used bourbon barrel. It could be a used Amaro or a used wine barrel. This is where it can be a little unpredictable. And two, it could be rested for any amount of time. So a two-year one is going to have really rich kind of almost heavy, overwhelming barrel, vanillin sort of notes. Whereas a lightly rested one is still going to be very botanical and, you know, might still have some of those uh, light citrus notes, which tend not to stick around in a barrel. Old Tom, another vaguely defined. We're not really good as a uh, gin community at defining our styles. Old Tom is a historical style. I would say when I look at Old Tom, I say the fundamental principle is Old Tom is about masking the taste of the base spirit. So back in the old days, before a column still, you had, you know, you might have distilled something and you couldn't get it up to maybe not even 70%. It still retained a lot of that residual base character. Sometimes distillers weren't using the top grain. Wheat went to the bakers, but the wheat that the bakers couldn't use, that went over to the distilleries. So you might have had a base vodka, base spirit that doesn't have a great flavor. So some of the techniques distillers Used, especially around the turn of the 20th century, late 19th century, were putting sugar in it. That's one of the things that's one of the things you see in old Tom's heavy botanical flavors like so using licorice as a kind of sweetening agent. So if you use a lot of licorice, it kind of adds a mouthfeel and a flavor that is very good at covering up some of uh, maybe even Apple Funk, for example. Um, (laughs) Or resting it in a barrel. Resting will cause some of those volatiles and some of those flavors to change just as it happens in whiskey in that barrel, which might kind of ameliorate some of those less savory notes in there. We don't have a name. We don't have an official designation for Old Tom. All three of those, but not exclusively... Are some of the things you might see in that. And certain sweetening doesn't have to be designated on the bottle, so it can be kind of hard to find. I would say most people who are making an old Tom style use the word Tom somewhere on it. Um, other styles, we have liqueurs, you know, obviously look for a uh, gin under 40%, under 37.5%. The liqueurs generally are going to have a fair amount of sweetening in it. Pink gins are pink. <laughs> that, that's that's very in these days, and I want to talk about navy. Those are going to be your overproof gins. You know, overproof. Those are going to be supposedly the proof that if it spills on your gunpowder, it'll still ignite. Da 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 da. Those are going to be uh, over 115 proof generally. 57.1. If we're being super precise, that's kind of more of a modern day fad than a historical artifact. However, those are very popular with bartenders. And then Mm -hmm. there's the Holland style, which isn't really a defined category, but I think it's really important for us to approach kind of making this a category. So say you are distilling a base spirit and you want it to retain some character a la a Jennifer, for example, or or maybe you're just doing grain to glass and you have a really good flavorful vodka that you don't want to lose all that character. These are so. I I consider Holland style gin is a gin where the base character is as if a botanical, it's a strong part of the flavor profile. You know, again, I totally understand if you're not familiar with these flavors, keep going to the flavor diagram. People sometimes describe them as spicy, sometimes people describe them as hot. But, however, why I think we should make this a category is because these gins tend to have a fundamentally different flavor profile than a gin where you distill the base spirit up until being completely neutral. And therefore, they don't mix in cocktails quite the same way as, you know, your Plymouth might. And if you go into buying this gin and you expect it to taste like Plymouth or Beefeater, I find people tend to be very disappointed by that if their expectation doesn't match it. And on the other side, I do find there's people who really like that character and like that flavor and want to seek it out. We don't have a great designation for it. The best advice is go to a tasting room, maybe consult, you know, someone like, you know, myself or Gin Magazine, right, and kind of see what people are saying about it. But I think if we could get to a point where we could differentiate, you know, on that shelf between something that's going to have that kind of like grainy, malty flavor as part of its, you know... Mashville and blend. I, I think that would help reduce some of the confusion or, you know, some of the things I hate when people say, I bought one American gin and I would never buy American gin again. And I say, well, that's because, you know, they're trying to, like, it's supposed to taste like a little bit of a light rye whiskey. It's supposed to have that white dog flavor. That's what they were going for. But it's just called American dry on the shelf next to another American dry gin. So, um, You know, I don't like I don't want to increase regulation, but I would like us to have like some more self policing or transparency that makes these designations more, you know, transparent. But I mean, I think, you know, the fact that I can't describe gin categories in less than like five, 10 minutes of descriptions is just a sign of like it's it is difficult even for experts to know what they're seeing when they look at a gin bottle on the shelf, Um, you know, so talk to your distillers when all of this virus nonsense is out go to your distilleries and taste with them talk to them i I think trying is really the best way um at this point to learn to differentiate you know a lot of liquor stores will pour you know have like a small pour behind the counter and can tell you what it tastes like but um yeah categories are a tough one
0: Yeah, and I think this is a good place for us to um, to to wrap up before we do some quick lightning round questions here, because I know you do have an engagement that we need to be sensitive of uh, following this. But um, what I wanted to say, having heard your description of these categories, A, it kind of validates why I was nervous to try and describe <laughs> them myself, because they are really complicated and not intuitive and largely not really employed especially in off-premise situations, which is Mm -hmm. the trade word for liquor stores. (laughs) Um, So, you know, I I think that this conversation, or rather I hope that this conversation has revealed to people some of both the uh, good complexity and the potentially, you know, like hampering complexity that exists in the world of gin uh, and... Hopefully, that explains why people like you and I are A, so interested in it, and B, like so willing to dive deep and try and figure out where some of these crisscrossing trails mm-hmm. intersect and, and why that is. I think gin is still very much an open frontier in a way that certain other spirits are not. You know, like I don't look at bourbon as an open frontier, I look at rum. And gin and agaves as open mm-hmm. frontiers. Uh, I look at, you know, uh, alternative distillate bases like rice and uh, a ton of like yes. Asian spirits that have not made it to the U.S. in, in uh, any great quantity as open frontiers. But gin still holds a special place due to the inherent complexity of taking a spirit and then adding ingredients to it at different, any number of places in the distillation process, so I think that makes it really compelling to me. And I, I hope that as the weather continues to get warm and, and uh, those those nice gin and tonics get more and more enticing here, that, that folks will take this as a cue to to try to try newer gins and to try and uh, increase their their palate uh, or the number of gins that they run across their palate. Uh, and and hopefully, you know, you'll get some joy out of that uh, in addition to some of the perplexing questions that we have encountered uh, simply in this short conversation.
1: Yeah, it's it's a there's so much room for creativity. And I think that's why it's so exciting to me, you know, so I, I definitely hope that all of your listeners go out, try some new gins and, you know, discover for themselves what flavors, what they like. You know, I think that's that it is a journey that you can go on with gin that's wholly unlike another category. Yeah. Yeah. Before
0: we do jump into the lightning round, I just, I I was hoping you could talk a little bit more about this, um, the consumer taste preferences. Just give us a a quick little pitch of um, who might be interested in in this publication and how they can get their hands on it.
1: No, certainly. So, um, it's available on Amazon, Amazon Prime, if, when Amazon Prime's uh, working again. And it, it's really, it was initially geared towards distillers and spirit creators, people who wanted to create a product and needed some lightweight market research about how people were talking about gin. However, I have found that, you know, people who are just into gin or bartenders have been messaging me saying that they have found it really useful for kind of helping them refine their language and how they communicate about not just gin but you know i say botanical spirits because you know we talk similarly about aquavits or you know it, people don't like what i say it, but also flavored vodkas for example you know i think one of the you know if i would say one of the really interesting you know insights in this book is that um you know it's not that And this is why I change it to botanical spirits, which is there is an immense amount of people searching for gins that have absolutely no juniper in it. And I find this, you know, rather than being, you know, some people might be existentially afraid, like, what does this mean for gin? And I think this just means that there is a rife, intelligent interest in what botanicals in a white spirit can do, and I think people are ready for experimentation. You know, if you're putting just juniper in there, just to put it on the gin shelf, okay, I get it. You don't want to be, that's, however, I, I think that this is a, this, you know, if I was looking at the next 10 years, what this says to me is there's a huge opportunity here for distillers, spirit product creators to, and, and, bar, and bartenders who are creating cocktail programs to design drinks and spirits that kind of meet this Really, I'd say latent need. I, you know, flavored vodka hasn't been traditionally filling this void, and I'm finding that people are coming to my gin website looking for what's a really good herbaly citrus spirit that has no juniper in it. That was one of the most shocking insights to me, and I think that's, you know, while there's plenty of insights in the book about what people who do like juniper are looking for, I think this is really that's the one that excites me about the future and the creative potential for this. A broader meta category of botanical spirits going forward.
0: Yeah. And I, I, uh, have gotten all the way through it. I underlined, I highlighted, I had a, a blast just, uh, you know, completely tearing it up with marginalia and my own notes. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, just what I found valuable about this before we jump into the lightning round here, a couple things. One, um, you have have everything backed up by data. So this is all based on um, aggregated data from your website. So uh, first of all, from a robustness standpoint, this is probably one of the best resources available just because your sample size is so large. Anybody who has spent any time around statistics knows that the bigger the sample size, the more valid the results. And uh, you actually have a ton of tables and graphs and appendixes uh, where you actually visualize the data, and then you also uh, are you know, rigorous enough to include things like confidence intervals. P is less than, or P is equal to .05. Like These things are important. And although most people might not be aware of how important they are, the fact that you have these confidence intervals and the fact that you have these you know, robust visualizations, to me, uh, is really valuable. It really helped me to understand what the data were saying. And um, in addition to that, you know the way that you approach this, um, you you have it broken up really intelligently, you know, based on the different types of flavor profiles. And then in the second half of the book, you give some really awesome uh, insights into what markets are about to break in the gin world, based on uh, Google search data, based on uh, the amount of search traffic on your site in uh, in particular. So, if I were a distiller. I would be like, like cackling maniacally at my, you know, plans for world gin domination after reading this. Uh, and so I'm not going to spill any of the secrets. I'm going to encourage uh, anybody who's interested uh, to go and pick it up because it really is an engaging and fun read for how much data is involved. Uh, but yeah, I just wanted to, to compliment that and say that I, I had a blast reading it.
1: Thank you very much. You know, again, humbled by it. And I think, you know, I think if you're going to work with statistics, you know, I just want to be totally, you know. Be honest and transparent, right? Like it's, you know, it's data. I'm not trying. I just want, I want you to make, you know, I want people to be able to read it and maybe come to their own conclusions, right? You know, I think, you know, I provide my context, but, uh, you know, there's, you might have a different experience and I definitely want you to be able to bring that to this, to a book like this, right? This is just to help you on your path. It's not to tell you exactly what to do, you know? So thank you again, though, for the compliments. Humbled by it.
0: Yeah, it was awesome. So let's jump in to the lightning round here. All right, let's go. All right, favorite cocktail of all time, and if you don't have a favorite, uh, what's something you've been more recently obsessed with?
1: Oh, it's the Negroni, hands down, equal parts. <laughs>
0: nice. Uh, any particular, like if you had to make one right now, gun to your head, what's the, uh, we'll assume Campari as a constant, but what's your gin and what's your vermouth?
1: Oh man, La Quintanae Royale, uh, which seems to have sporadic availability in the US, but that is my absolute favorite. Dolan is my, Dolan is my standard go-to. Um, you know, gin wise, I'm going to be honest, you know, if I'm I, the triple juniper from uh, Never Never Distilling down in Australia, if you are a juniper lover, that distillery is absolutely killing it with every one of their products. I have mm-hmm. a small bottle of their gin right now, and that is like my off the clock. I just want a Negroni to enjoy life sort of uh, gin right now. But I mean, I, I like a good Juniper forward. like even Gordon's is fantastic mm-hmm. in a Negroni.
0: Yeah, awesome. Uh, If you were a cocktail ingredient, what would you be and why?
1: (laughs) You know, I, I, this is, this is like one of those weird questions. I I guess I would like to be, I would say I'm lavender bitters. One, because bitters are indispensable. You know, you just, you just need a little bit of it to kind of like elevate your drink. I'm not the. The gin is in isn't like the story of your cocktail. I just want to help get you on the path, you know? So, and I'm unabashedly a huge fan of lavender. So I just want to be like slightly esoteric enough to, uh, (laughs) but anyway, I don't know. I guess that's a weird one. Yeah. Lavender bitters. Call me that. Well,
0: uh, I'm going to get your shipping address and we're going to put some of our embitterment lavender bitters in the mail uh, for you after we get off the, off the chat here. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, okay. That is awesome. I, I, I'm just a little sidebar. I, I will I will compare our bitters qualitatively side by side with lots of other bitters out there, and say, mm-hmm. okay, well maybe my maybe our aromatic bitters aren't the best aromatic bitters out there because they're a very specific type of aromatic bitters. I will say that I think our lavender bitters are the best lavender bitters out there. That's the one where I'll like just stand up and be like, nope, you're all wrong. Ours is the
1: best. Uh, so yeah, I'm excited for I, you to I taste am- those. I'm super psyched because, you know, I might be a non-traditionalist, but I love a dash of like lavender bitters in my martinis. Five mm-hmm. to two ratio with like a dash of lavender bitters. Like that is, that's my jam. What can yeah, I man. say?
0: Oh ooh, man, I love it. I love it. Um, Widowmaker question here. Uh, if you could have a cocktail yeah. with anyone past or present, who would it be?
1: Where would you go? What would you drink? Uh, just kind of paint us a picture. So, this is really fascinating because I have been really preoccupied with some of the weird cocktails in Jerry Thomas's Bartender's Manual. Like, he has like this gin and pine thing in there, which is like, yeah, he barely describes it. And I found very little about it outside of maybe one reference in, you know, a Boston newspaper. So, I want to meet Jerry Thomas. I want him to make me a gin and pine, maybe a gin and tansy too. And I want and I I want to see what he actually does. I want to know how he makes that what sort of pine is in that gin on the, uh, you know, it's, it's just like it's a mystery to me that and and I think it would just be really fun to I mean, he also sounds like a really fun guy to uh, talk to and just get to know like, what was it really like mixing gins mixing in the 19th century? And can you tell me what an old Tom gin is in your opinion?
0: Mm, yeah. Well, and I, I bet he would be happy to uh, to nerd out because uh, they didn't call him the professor for nothing.
1: Exactly. I think we'd I think we'd have some good discussions over that gin and pine.
0: Well, if you if you need to um, create a website uh, specifically dedicated to that quest, I think you would have to call it. Uh, in in light of the gin is in, you'd probably have to call it the pine is
1: fine. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, the, the the pun, the pun, the uh, the little like uh, pun just kind of like has stuck with me forever. So the gin is in. What Maybe I would have bought ginreviews.com had I actually been thinking at the time, but I was like, no, no, I'm cutesy. Gin is in. Yes.
0: Oh, no. Yeah, there are certain <laughs> there are certain domain decisions that we make early on in, in our, our careers that sometimes come back to haunt us later. But uh, now uh, clearly it hasn't hurt your traffic all that much. So um, let's. <laughs> Let's do the um, the kind of uh, like non-traditional stuff here. What is a traditional cocktail ingredient that you've never tasted and why?
1: It's a picone I've never had it on its own and I know it's widely available. I know a nearby distillery nearby to me in Denver was one of the ones to bring it back. And every time I see it, I'm like, oh, I just don't, I don't, I don't know why. And it baffles me. The moment you said that, I, I, you know, the moment you say that, I'm like, yeah, it's a mere and I don't know why, but I, it's uh, it's just like I should really just pick up a bottle and kind of hmm. I don't know. Is that tra- I mean, it's traditional. Maybe it's not common. It's a little esoteric. A lot of high end bars have it, but it's in a lot of cocktails, especially historical ones. I I just need to like take the plunge, right? I do this for a living. Come on.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'll be honest. I don't know if I've had it by itself either. I've definitely had it in cocktails. Um, right? Could you just describe in general in very sketchy terms for our listeners what it is
1: i mean it's it's essentially it's kind of a as i understand it's kind of like a grand marnier sort of thing like it's got like the orange peels it's got some genti and it's like a bitter designed to be sipped like an amaro and that's pretty much the off the top of my head. I hope I'm not relaying something incorrect to your readers. Like, but like I'm a little hazy like on exactly what goes into it, mostly because it was a forgotten recipe. I know uh, uh, Stephen Gould of Golden Moon, like uh, distillery. He he, I remember talking to him when he was researching like. 18th and 19th century distillers manuals trying to figure out exactly what was in it so i don't even know if i would say we have a canonical this is what it's supposed to be it's a forgotten spirit like you know forbidden fruit we know it's grapefruit but other than that we don't really know what the recipe was distillers didn't write these and share them so um i I need to get some america and have it and like and then be like oh I was right or really, really wrong.
0: Yeah, true, true. Yeah, or like Don's mix. You know, there, there are certain things that are just lost to history. Um, and I think that's, you know, one of the allures of people trying to bring things back. So that's that's a great answer. Um, now, kind of riding off the coattails of that question, what is a unusual or potentially controversial opinion that you have in these spirits or cocktail space? Uh, And I have a feeling, knowing you, that you have at least one controversial opinion. (laughs) Um,
1: My most controversial one is that um, gin doesn't have to be extraordinarily juniper-forward to be a good gin, and that I really, I wholeheartedly believe that the fact that gin is so loosely defined has created an opportunity for so much creativity. I love the things that you can do contemporary gin that are, you know, that some people would say are not gin. I that's not something I would say and I don't really I don't really want to be I'm not I'm not the gin police. I, I'm here to taste flavor and embrace creativity and that's and I think this is a this is a controversial opinion. I think, you know, at ADI judging, there's a few judges, you know, we don't always see eye to eye on this one, but I really do believe that, you know, there's so much good work that's come out of, you know, non juniper forward or gins where some people say they can't taste juniper, you know, there's some very good spirits there. And I, I embrace it. It's good for the category. It's good for us. And it's, you know, it's inspired a whole generation of people that maybe don't want, you know, that want botanical spirits. Now, I don't, I don't know. It's, um, so that's super controversial.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I think my my controversial opinion that came out at the gin table while judging is that I don't believe that uh, crushability should be necessarily a, uh, a <laughs> judging criterion for ready-to-drink cocktails. Uh, and that that was certainly controversial. Uh, as <laughs> we, we reviewed the sheets, it was like 90, 90, 90, Crushable, 60. crushable. <laughs> and I'm like,
1: no. Nah. Uh, you know, <laughs> I'm with you. Like, that is, it's a really weird metric that I think was unheard of five years ago for professionals to be assessing the crushability of RTDs. But, like, I mean, when we were reviewing, um, like, alcoholic Freezy Puffs and, and that was like, yeah, you know, I, I could, I could crush, I could crush a few of these. Yeah. Give it a good. Exactly. S-
0: oh, man, man. Uh, <laughs> so, Aaron, this has been a super fun for me. Um, could you just give us all of the digital hooks for people to go and find you, uh, whether that's social media, the website, uh, and then the books?
1: Yeah, no, certainly. So thank you again for having me. This has been a pleasure chatting with you. You can find me, uh, the gin is in all over the place. I'm the gin is in on Facebook. Instagram is really where I'm doing, you know, posting a lot these days. You can find me on Twitter if that's kind of your jam under the same handle. As for the books, they're all available on Amazon and um, worldwide, depending on what your retailer, depending on where you are, you can find um, Gin, the Art and Craft of the Artisan Revival in your local bookstores. So, um, you know, definitely check it out. And there will be a a new version. I'm going to be making that Consumer Reports thing an annual publication. So if you're if you can sit tight and wait for 2021, uh, that should be coming out towards the end of the year on, on Amazon as well. So, you know, but definitely check it out and, you know, and send me a message, you know, comment and let me know if you're finding the gin flavor you like. You know, I, like I said, I I want I hope you enjoy your gin journey and find the flavor you like and, you know, and own it, whatever it is.
0: Yeah, man. Uh... Amen. We're going to link to everything on the show notes page over at modernbarcart.com forward slash podcast. Uh, and other than that, man, just thanks so much for, uh, for being a guest today.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Eric. It was great chatting with you. Uh, definitely wish you the best of luck in these times and, uh, thank you all for listening. Uh, hope, uh, hope you enjoy some good GTS this summer.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Amen. This episode was made possible with editing and production assistance by Samantha Reed, oodles and oodles of gin knowledge by Aaron Knoll and theginisin.com, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2020.